Well, before we talk about conflict management, which is somewhat of the topic today, welcome to week three of our series, Right in the Eye. Um, and if you are just joining us, maybe you haven't been a part of the last few weeks of this series, you can catch up on our app or on our website. Love to have you a part of this uh, because we have gone through a lot of really interesting and I think helpful and serious uh, topics so far in this series that uh, I know I realize I preach it, but I still find it helpful because um, that's kind of what happens when you preach someone else's truth and when you preach God's truth. So really hope that you'll catch up with us so far in this series. Um, today, we're going to jump back in uh, to the book of Judges, and I'll explain that in a minute, but into another wild story. Not quite as wild as we had a couple weeks ago, uh, but it is pretty wild. So that will be interesting as well as for you Bible slash archaeology nerds out there like myself. There's going to be some fun facts in there for you, all two of you out there watching this morning. So anyways, so far in this series, we've been talking about this idea of freedom. And we've been talking about kind of this version of freedom, the version of freedom that goes like this. I want to do what I want when I want, with whom I want. I want to do what I want to do when I want, with whom I want. And we've talked about how this so often parallels the American dream, the idea that we're going to set goals and we're going to be able to accomplish them and view this as an opportunity and a challenge to get what I want when I want it. And we're going to, you know, take the bull by the horns and, and just see it through. And in some ways that's acceptable motivation, but kind of as we've learned through the series is this version of freedom has some serious drawbacks. In fact, this version of freedom has some serious costs associated with it. In fact, that this version of freedom isn't actually free. That at some point or another, that if we approach life long enough with that kind of an attitude, we're eventually going to need a lawyer, which is going to cost us something. We're eventually going to hurt others, which may drive them away from us, which will cost us something. And essentially, it's going to lead to our topic today, which is conflict. Now, if other people in our world, in our environment, in our relationships, take some of the same attitudes as I want what I want when I want, eventually, it's naturally going to lead to conflict because not everybody can get what they want. Because sometimes, somewhere along the lines, they're going to kind of layer up on top of each other, and somebody's going to want something that's not going to work for you, and it's just going to end in conflict. For example, maybe you've had it at some point in your life when your neighbor, they wanted to do something, and because they did that something, it meant that you couldn't do what you wanted. Or maybe with your spouse, or you and your spouse. Maybe you were the problem. You know, you decided I want to go do this, which means your spouse had to stay home and watch the kids and fold the laundry and clean the house. And because you got to do what you wanted, they didn't get to do what they wanted. And certainly around the topics of politics these days, there are competing versions of freedom, competing, competing versions of what we want. And because they are both competing, that means that there is naturally going to be conflict. Now, if it gets bad enough, it leads to something much more than just a simple disagreement. It leads to division. When people and groups, communities, even countries become divided, completely like separate, where people get so divided that they begin to take sides 
They begin to find their identity within their little groups and they distrust, mistrust, sometimes even hate the other group. It becomes a very much an us and them mentality. And the problem is that for someone to get what they want means someone is going to have to win, at least in the American culture that we have, that someone has to be right or someone has to win to get what they want. In other words, somebody has to lose. That someone, whoever that someone is or group of someone's who has the, the most money, who is the fittest, who has the biggest guns, who has the most influence, they are going to be the ones that win and they're going to be the ones that get what they want. That's what we do, isn't it? And we don't even think about how that may impact everybody else. We don't think about how that may impact the loser because, well, they're the loser. So what do we do? Well, we have a couple options. We can try to win. We can try and surrender and let other people win, which is usually not something most of us want to do. We can try to pretend it doesn't exist. We can block everybody on social media we don't agree with and pretend they just aren't even there. In fact, I would just suggest to you that most of this just feels, especially these days, fairly impossible. Like we're kind of in a, an impossible divide as a country, as people, and it just feels like there's not a great path forward. Enter our crazy story for today. Enter the book of Judges, which is a book in the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible, as well as a period of time. Specifically, we're going to be looking at a very particular period of time, 1125 B.C. And there's a reason it's so specific, and that's because of carbon dating, which we'll get to in a second. Um, but essentially, the book of Judges, the period of the Judges, happens between the time of Joshua. Moses takes the people out of Egypt, and then Joshua brings them into the promised land. And then there's the time of the Judges, followed by the time of the kings like King Solomon and, and David and all those characters maybe you're familiar with. If not, that's totally okay. But that's the period we've been looking at. And today, we're going to actually look at an entire chapter in the book of Judges, chapter 9, if you want to follow along. Chapter 9 is a really long chapter as far as chapters go in the Bible. And so I'm going to summarize it, and we're just going to look at a few key verses, kind of like we did a few weeks ago. But essentially, we're going to walk away, I hope, with the opportunity to see a path forward for ourselves, for you, for me, and honestly, I think for our world, that we have an opportunity to work through and resolve divisions in a new way. And I realize, depending on where you sit with the whole religion and faith thing, this could be um, something you like, and this could also be a solution that you resist. But I don't think you're going to be able to objectively look at the solution today and say objectively that it isn't practical because it does have a lot of practical implications. You can't look at it today and say, well, I don't think this is going to help because I think if you look at the practical side of things, this actually really would help. And I think it's honestly really worth considering. So today's story starts with a man named Gideon. 
And this man is not actually very important for this series or for today's message, but some of you may be familiar with him if you grew up in church and you read your children's Bible once in a while, because uh, he was a very famous judge. Now, most of us don't think of him as a judge in the book of Judges, but he was, okay? And it's a very interesting story, his life uh, through chapter six through eight in the book of Judges, a very faithful story where he, faithful to God, where he starts in a wine press and goes out to conquer and win, and it's just like, like, yay, you know, Gideon, all this kinds of stuff. Anyways, everybody in Israel really liked Gideon because he did some really awesome things. Um, and so, uh, but because you are kind of familiar with the story, I thought, let's just skip this, go to chapter nine, because chapter nine is a lot more interesting. Anyways, uh, from a, a scandalous perspective, if you will. And we're going to talk today about his son, Abimelech. Now, Abimelech is spelled a couple different ways. So depending on the Bible you read, it may end with C-H or K. It doesn't, just the determination of the translators. But essentially, Abimelech is one of Gideon's 70 male children. 70 kids. Can you believe that? Obviously not the same woman, okay? He had many wives. And one of those was a woman or Abimelech's mom, who lived in uh, and had her family in the town, the city of Shechem, which we've talked a lot about so far. It's near the modern day city in, the, in, in, um, in Israel, in the Israel area called Nablus. And anyways, uh, Abimelech, here's a, actually a, uh, a map, so you can kind of follow along right here. Um, there's Mount Gerizim and there's Shechem, or the modern day um, city of Nabals. Anyways, so Abimelech is quite an interesting guy. In fact, I would describe him as a power hungry man, okay? And he, for whatever reason, the story goes, wanted to have more power. That's usually how power hungry people go. They want more, 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 more. And he wanted to control the city of Shechem. Because Shechem, in a lot of ways, was a fairly key city in that area for the nation of Israel. So he went to Shechem, and he sought out his mom's brothers, his uncles, essentially. And he said to them, you all need to listen up. We have a problem on our hands. We have way too many children of Gideon, and they're all trying to be leaders. Everybody looks at them as they're powerful and famous, and we should listen to them. But 70 is 72, or 69, too many. And so he said, you need to simplify things and put all your support in me. And to some extent, you can kind of understand the people's dilemma because they're thinking to themselves, as you thought to yourself, if you've ever had multiple bosses, right? You had one, but then there was another one that was kind of supervising you. And it was difficult to manage all these bosses. Maybe you had more than two, okay? And, and so you can kind of understand. They were like, well, that would kind of make sense. And so they said, yeah, we'll go with you, Abimelech, because um, you are our relative. Um, you are from our city, and so we're going to support you, okay? And so they took this message that they were going to support Abimelech and that they should simplify everything to the people of Shechem, and here's how the story kind of kicks off in verse 3. When the brothers repeated all this to the citizens of Shechem, they were inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he is related to us. Makes sense. They, story goes on, they gave him 70 shekels of silver from the temple of Baal-Berit. You wonder what pastors do all week long? They sit and they practice how to pronounce Hebrew names. That's all we do. Okay, so there you go. Now, um, now to give, uh, essentially, the, so the, the brothers were like, hey, we're going to give you some startup money. 
um, uh, Abimelech to get control, to get power. Essentially what they did is they said, we're going to get this whole mess that's going to carry on through the the ninth chapter of Judges started. Okay, now you think to yourself, Okay, the little bit that I do know about, you know, Christian history, Jewish history is that you're not supposed to have any idols. That's kind of a big rule. You know, it's only God. It's only Yahweh. You're not supposed to have any other gods before me. And that's true. And so what in the world is this particular Baal Baret temple doing in the middle of Shechem? We talked about this kind of last year, uh, last week, excuse me, and the week before that the uh, people, the nation of Israel would often rub shoulders. And we're going to see that in two weeks when we talk about the story of Samson in a big way, rub shoulders with all these other nations that were kind of in and amongst them as a people group. Okay. And therefore they also rub shoulders with these other gods. And so they had built a temple to another God in Shechem. Now, do you think God was happy about that? God was not happy about that, but that's where the story gets even more weird. Okay. So Abimelech used the money to hire reckless scoundrels. Those are words we don't use very often. Some scoundrels. Okay. Who became his followers. He went to his father's home in Ophrah and on one stone murdered his 70 brothers. He lined them up and he chopped them in half one at a time, or I actually don't know how he did it, but Anyways, they're dead, okay? And it's pretty awful. Uh, And you'd think, especially from a Western culture, that that's pretty terrible. Um, But in, I mean, in all honesty, in our world, just even in the last 20 years, uh, there's been um, uh, about a half dozen genocides of thousands and thousands of people dying. So it's not like in the past 3,000 years since the story, we've come really far, okay? So all the citizens of Shechem gathered together after this whole murderous deed was done and they named him king. So they're all there in Shechem. They're standing outside that Baal temple and they're naming Abimelech king. And then this really strange thing happens. Some guy starts yelling from one of the top sides of the mountain down on the city of Shechem, down on the people gathered, naming Abimelech king starts yelling. And everybody's kind of like, you know, what, what's going on? Who, who's doing all of that yelling? Um, and they figured out, and Abimelech figured out, that he had missed one of the brothers named Jotham. And Josh, Jotham saw what was happening, saw what had happened to his brothers, and he was essentially in anger, yelling down at Abimelech and the people of Shechem, a curse on them, okay? And it's a really interesting, strange, peculiar curse that essentially involves the story of a fig tree, a vine, and uh, some thorn bushes having a conversation, as if that makes perfect sense. And they all ask a, and he asks a string of rhetorical questions, which is essentially just make the point that what y'all are doing right now is really bad, okay? As if the murdering thing wasn't bad enough, now you're making the murderer guy king. Bad idea, And then Jotham ends this with essentially a statement that says, if you're all listening, you need to pay attention because what's going to happen next? And then he gets like probably really serious and kind of weird about it. He says, you're all going to burn. And then he runs and hides. Strange, right? Now, can't make this stuff up. I'm serious. Read it tonight. It's, It's all in there, okay? 
fig trees and bushes talking, it's there. Okay, now, after Abimelech had taken the rule of the, the, the city of Shechem and kind of the nation of Israel, so the story goes on, after Abimelech had governed Israel for three years, God stirred up animosity between Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem so that they acted treacherously, treacherous, treacherously I should have practiced that word, uh, against Abimelech. Now, in all honesty, I don't think God had to stir up much at all. Because I can't imagine that Abimelech was that great of a ruler and the people of Shechem were that grace-giving of subjects. And so I'm guessing there was a lot of animosity just growing between them in nature of their personalities. But this is kind of a trend in the book of Judges. We've kind of talked about this, how often the author of Judges would give God a lot of credit for doing something. And we're going to talk about this more next week too, that I'm not sure God had a lot to do with because the people kind of made it a mess all on their own. I'm not sure that a loving, honoring God that is the, the Yahweh of, of this story, the God of this story, is, is really out to be on the side of, um, you know, negative people and, and really trying to cause harm. I think they're just doing that all on their own. Now, things are getting really tense in the city of Shechem. And I think part of the reason that everything's getting, you know, kind of tense, not only is their personality, but it's because of that idea of freedom. That idea that I want to do what I want to do, what I want to do, when I want to do it, all that stuff. And they begin to have a conflict inside the city because a group of people wanted one thing and then the leader wanted another. And therefore there's division. And instead of trying to reconcile, instead of trying to work through it, instead of trying to understand, instead of Abimelech and the people of Shechem getting a counselor and kind of, you know, working it out and all that kind of stuff, they just go to what I think we tend to go to, which is we just got to fight it out. We got to figure out who's right, who's the winner, because that's the only way to settle who gets what they want. And that makes sense, doesn't it? That's going to go really well, isn't it? Hopefully by now you figured out that this version of freedom isn't that free. So people, the people of Shechem start robbing people as they're coming into the city of Shechem, which starts messing with the economy, which means people are, you know, getting really upset because money's on the line, okay? And then there's this other guy named Gaal, excuse me, who uh, has a, like a little clan of people. They're not Israelite. It's a different group of people. And he sees the unrest happening in Shechem and he wants to take advantage of it. So now you've got a third person who's really just trying to take advantage of all the pain and unrest. And guess what his attitude is? I want what I want when I want it. So he's now in the fray. Do you think that's going to make things better? No, it's not going to make things better. Okay. So he shows up and says to the people of Shechem, you should follow me, this Gaul guy. Um, you should follow me, the people of Shechem, like, you're right. We're going to follow you because that Abimelech guy, he's bad news, as if they didn't know that from the start. And Abimelech says, well, that's not good. We have to punish everybody. Okay, we got to take back our city and make everybody suffer. And so he makes a plan with his deputy, the guy who's also in charge of the city of Shechem, to ambush Gaul and his 
troops, okay? And so the ambush goes down, okay? And, and then, um, you know, Gaul is sitting there and he's like, I'm not sure I'm being ambushed. And everybody's like, yeah, you're definitely not being ambushed. And he's like, well, I'm not, still not sure. And everybody's like, no, nah, you're not being ambushed. And then all of a sudden, all the troops are close enough that he's like, I'm getting ambushed. And he starts freaking out. And then Abimelech kind of acts like a middle schooler on the playground and says to him, he says, where's your big talk now, bro? You who said, who is Abimelech that we should be subject to him? Aren't these the men you ridiculed? Get out and fight them. You big tough man, get out there and go to battle. And so they go to battle and guess what? Gaul loses, okay? And he's done. And instead of Abimelech stopping and saying, you know what? You guys learned your lesson. We need to reconcile and work this out. He says, no, I want payback. I want to get back at you Shechemites for you um, displacing me and putting your trust in another leader. So he goes to war with the remaining people in Shechem. And so the remaining people in Shechem, some of them retreat to a nearby city and some of them retreat into the, that Baal temple in the city of Shechem because it's pretty fortified. We'll look at that in a second. On hearing this, so that everything's going down, the people and uh, citizens uh, went to the tower in Shechem, the stronghold of the temple. They went to kind of the center of it. So here's a picture of um, an artist's rendition of maybe what the temple looked like based on the archaeological ruins in the city of Nablus that you can go see today, okay? So Abimelech runs up with his army. All the people are in the center of the, uh, of the temple here. They surround it. And you'll never guess what Abimelech does next. Remember Jotham's whole curse where he ends the whole thing. He's like, you're all going to burn. Abimelech, probably not even thinking about this, just so angry and wanting to get back, wanting to get back at them, goes out, cuts down a bunch of trees, puts them, uh, all the branches and all that around the temple and sets the entire temple on fire. And the story says a thousand men and women were burned alive. Now, we've talked about this before. Though destruction is not great for the people who went through it, it is great for archaeology. And one of the unique things that archaeologists have found at the ruins is that in about 1,125 BC, so about the time of this story, based on the Bible uh, reading and timeline, there was the temple, and the temple was destroyed because they found a burn layer of ash and soot and rubble based on a destruction, essentially a massive fire that occurred there. And they determined that since that temple was burned, it had never been used again short of being used as some grain storage in the past three millennia. Pretty cool, right? That this story actually has some really historical factual backing. Now, back to our story. Is our story over now that a thousand people have died? Abimelech is obviously now in charge of Shechem. Is he going to stop? Of course not. He wants revenge. So he goes out and hunts all the other Shechemites down. He goes to this nearby city called Tebez. And guess where the people of Shechem were in Tebez? They were in the inner sanctuary of another temple in Tebez, just waiting to fight Abimelech. So what's Abimelech thinking? Well, the fire thing worked pretty well in Shechem, so I'm going to try it here again. But as he approached, the author of Judges, Judges says, as he approached the entrance of the tower to set it on fire, a woman, 
then, way to go, ladies, dropped an upper millstone on his head and cracked his skull. Here's a picture of an upper millstone so you get the idea. This was a woman. She picked this baby up and she dropped it over on Abimelech's head. I just happen to think, maybe you agree, that it is pretty great that some woman needed to stand up in this story and just get all these men uh, and kind of teach them a lesson, you know, like they've just been causing all this mess and trouble and knock some sense into them, okay? Anyways, so back to the story. Abimelech, realizing he is badly injured, does the only thing that any arrogant male would ever do. He hurried, hurriedly, he called to his armor bearer, draw your sword and kill me. So they can't say a woman killed him. So his servant ran him through with a sword and he died. Good story, right? Despite his attempt to prevent people from knowing that he died at the hands of a woman, we all know that he died at the hands of a woman for 3,000 years. And when the Israelites saw that Abimelech was dead, they went home. The end. Aren't these just great stories? I mean, you want to say, these are too good to be true. But the other part of you kind of knows Humanity is pretty crazy, and they do some terrible, wild things that maybe, just maybe, they were capable of this. And this has kind of been a theme throughout this entire book, that at every turn, there's always two different parties competing to get what they want. I want what I want when I want. I want control, so therefore I'm going to go and I'm going to take out all my other brothers and get control of the citizens. And when the citizens revolt, I want control again, so I'm going to fight back. And I'm not only going to take out this other clan leader guy, but I'm going to even take out the people of the people who I'm supposed to rule and lead and not just take them out, burn them alive. If it takes an ambush, I'm going to ambush. If it takes fire, I'm going to burn them. And I'm not going to settle because I want what I want when I want it. And so we're left with the idea that the only way to resolve division, conflict, the only way to resolve I want what I want when I want is just going to have to fight it out. Right? Come on. That's not reasonable. That's not a better way forward. I mean, if you take that approach to your relationships, if you take that approach to those you care most about, you may win, but you kind of know that ultimately you've lost. Your spouse may give up. Your spouse may give in. Your friends may say, oh, you're right. Your boss may say, oh, you're right. But deep down, did you really win? Did the people around you really ultimately win? Did you love them as best as you could have? Of course not. There's a better way. There's a better way to deal with division because division means that someone has to be, has to win and someone has to lose. And that's kind of how it's worked maybe in your life so far is that there's a winner and there's a loser and you want to be the winner. 
certainly how it works in our world today, certainly how it works in the political world today, maybe how it works with your in-laws, your roommate, or your kids, is somebody's got to win. And so ever, whoever can just grin and bear it and fight back the hardest, the longest, they will be ultimately named the winner and they get what they want. But you just know, you intuitively know this right here, don't you? That the scorched earth policy of Abimelech, the scorched earth, poli- earth policy that you, maybe you're incorporating into your relationships to set fire to things, to fight, 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 is not a good option. And that there's got to be something better. The author of Judges leaves this chapter with these few short sentences. Thus, God repaid the wickedness that Abimelech had done to his brothers by murdering, or excuse me, done to his father, uh, Gideon, by murdering his 70 brothers. God also made the people of Shechem pay for all their wickedness. You know, and I read this, and I just thought to myself as I was reading this, was this necessary? What if, what if, people in this story would have said, you know what, God, I want to just save you the trouble of having to repay wickedness. And God, what do you want me to do? God, instead of it being about me winning, what would it look like for you to win? What What if in the midst of a division, we would bring in a third party? Someone who wasn't all about, I want what I want when I want, like Gal was in the story. What if we would have changed the dynamics by saying, God, would you come into this division and could we make you the one who wins? What would it look like, God, if you were the winner when this whole situation has finished? What if everybody wanted God to win? What if everybody wanted God to win? At this point in the story, the history of the biblical story, Jesus doesn't exist yet, but the Ten Commandments did. In fact, that was the governing kind of guiding principle of the nation is you're supposed to follow God's law. God was supposed to be king and he had given the laws and the people of the nation of Israel were supposed to follow those laws. So just the Ten Commandments, for example, one of the, uh, all the commandments are all about honoring and not just honoring Honestly, it's not just, it's not at all about honoring yourself. It's about honoring others. The first part, honor God. The middle part, honor those you love. Honor your mother, honor your father. Honor your neighbor. Don't steal from them. Don't murder them. Don't covet from them. It's all about honoring someone else. And so what if everybody would approach division with the idea of, we just want God to win. What if both spouses in a marriage decided, I just want, we just want God to win. We want God to look down on this relationship and say, this relationship is good. This relationship is God honoring. This relationship is loving. It's respectful. It's patient. It's kind. It's uh, peaceful. It's filled with forgiveness and mercy and kindness. All those things that, that Paul talks about that love's supposed to be in 1 Corinthians verse 13, or chapter 13. And that people on the outside, they look into that relationship and they say, wow, it is good. It is just, it is so good. It is so positive. It 
it's either like all fake or it's got to just be divine. They just have to be pursuing something so much greater than themselves. It's just that good. And people admire it. I think that, com- that kind of relationship begins when two people say, I want God to win. Politically, these days, I, I just hear a lot of people seeming to have a really good handle about God once, rather than patiently waiting for, what, for God's direction. You know, they, they read a few chapters in the Bible and they just seem to understand the whole thing and know exactly in this time and place what God wants. Rarely do I ever hear anybody say, you know what, I, I'm still working on that. I'm just patiently waiting for God to kind of give me some guidance on what it would look like for God to win. Instead, they end up using God kind of as a cudgel to beat other people into submission to what they want when they want it, with whom they want it with. Instead of pushing our own agendas, what if, what if we worried about God's agenda? Instead of trying to win against those who we care about most, why don't we consider what God wants and maybe caring about God most? Imagine If the other party in the dispute that you have going on in your life, or maybe the more recent dispute in your life that you had going on, what if they look back? What if if they both came to the table? What if you came to the table, they came to the table, and, and you both just said this, I'm good. I'm good. I just want God to win. Could you imagine how that would change the dynamic? Could you imagine how this would have changed the story we were just reading? And I realize for some of you, you're probably thinking to yourself, yeah, but Taylor, what, what if it's just me? What if I'm the only one coming to the table and saying, I'm good, I just want God to win? What if the other party is not there? That's really quite possible. But again, back to the story from today, what if only one person in that story had said, you know what, ultimately, I just want what God wants. I just ultimately want what God wants. Don't you think that would change the story today in some pretty profound ways? Because the issue was there was always two people coming to the table just wanting what they want when they want it. And if one person would say, you know what, I just want what God wants, how that would open the door to something that otherwise wasn't there before. I think it would help certainly if we began to ask that question personally for us to become more aware more aware of our pride, of our ego, of the things that kind of get in our way that keep us from this being our desire. And instead, by saying this, we could open the door where both of us, both parties, both groups, both us and them fight for the same thing, God to win. So as I leave you today, I want you to think about filling in the blank. I want, I want, when you go into division, when you go into a challenging situation, when you know there's a fight eminent or a disagreement that's pretty eminent, what if you went into that and instead of, I want what I want, when I want, you said, I want God to win. Winning doesn't always mean you ultimately win, right? Right? 
most of the characters in the story left a path of destruction behind them, trying to get what they want. I think winning really starts to happen when we put God first. And I realize that could be a stretch for some of us. So I'm just asking you to wrestle with it, consider it, and maybe even pray on it. Don't let division do what division does, divide. Don't let disagreements lead to division. God first. God wins first. My encouragement to you, especially if you consider yourself a Jesus follower, is to pray. To take intentional time when disagreements arise to ask this difficult question, God, what do you want? I'm going to take myself out of it. What do you want? We're not used to it. So maybe we need to take some time to read Matthew, for example, chapters 5 through 7. It's the Sermon on the Mount. And we get a pretty clear idea from Jesus of what God ultimately wants. Let's try putting that first. So as we wrap up today, and the band's going to come up, and they're going to sing here in just a second, I just want you to think about these questions and then maybe answer it later today. What does it look like for you to want what God wants? What does it look like for you to want what God wants? And how do archaeological discoveries like this temple impact your belief in these stories, especially if you're someone who's a bit of a skeptic? And we'll put these posts on uh, our social media and in the slides at the end of service. Let's uh, bow our heads and pray together real quick. Heavenly Father, division is easy. Reconciliation is hard. Winning and fighting to win, or shutting down to win, or getting defensive to win, doing essentially whatever it takes to win is honestly easier than stepping back and saying, God, what would it look like for you to win? Lord, help us to be the kind of followers of you who bring that to the table every single day, to every single discussion, to every single topic when we're so inclined to just make a post or make a comment on social media, send an email, make a phone call, send a text, we would step back and instead, Lord, help us to say, God, what would it look like for you to win in this moment? Help us to lovingly bring that up maybe to the eyes of others, to invite others into that same question that instead of fighting, you would invite them into discussion about What would it look like for God to win in that moment? Lord, help us to walk away from the path of Abimelech and walk towards the path of following you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, we're going to.